everybody. Welcome back to the show. I'm Jeff Hilsebeck, and this is WVU Reads. For those of you who are new, the podcast explores this year's campus read, Educated, by Tara Westover. Each week, I invite a guest into the studio to help us understand different aspects of the book. I wanted to tell a story to start this episode about a recent trip I took out to a federal prison. So two weeks ago, I traveled through thick morning fog to the prison at Hazleton, which is here in West Virginia, to discuss Educated with a group of about 15 incarcerated men. I'd been invited by Delia Trickett, who's here in the studio with me today. Delia is an adjunct instructor uh, in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology. She has an MA in Sociology and a BA in Criminology, both from WVU. And currently, she co-facilitates an inside-out course, and she'll tell us more about that later in the show, at a prison here in West Virginia through Fairmont State. So when we went out, we talked about Educated, and each of the guys in the group also wrote a little bit about the book. And Delia and I will read from their responses a little later in the show. We gathered together in a small classroom in the corner of their unit. The classroom had a colorful mural on one wall, chalkboard and a whiteboard on the other two walls, both covered in writing. We squeezed a circle of desks and chairs into the room. Outside of that classroom was a large common area, not so much a a room as a hangar or a warehouse, very high ceiling, big open space, everything painted white, everything concrete and metal, metal tables and chairs bolted to the floor, concrete support pillars with little TVs attached to them. Along the perimeter of this large open space, so the classroom was sort of in the corner of this this large room, and running out in either direction from the classroom were the cells, narrow, dark, cramped cells. And the visual contrast between what was outside the classroom and what was inside it was very stark. We talked for two or three hours about the book. Mostly they talked, and, and I listened. And some of them liked the book, Others didn't like the book. Some of them found common ground with Westover, and others didn't. And, and, and Delia and I, like I said, will explore those responses a little bit later in the show. But I was struck talking to them and, and then reading their responses by the ways in which there are lots of different ways of reading, lots of ways of being a good reader. So if you remember way back in episode three, we talked about Tara Westover's patience as a reader, how as a girl she used to work through these abstruse Mormon texts, and later as a graduate student, equally difficult works of philosophy and history. So she reads, I would say, like a scholar. And one can read like a scholar, but one can also read like a critic. And if you remember episode eight, when Lynn Stahl and I talked, we both complained a little bit about Westover's unwillingness to do that, to read like a critic. Um, so what, what is that? What does it mean to read like a critic? So here's the literary theorist Edward Said on good criticism. So Said says, In its suspicion of totalizing concepts, in its discontent with reified objects, criticism is most itself. For in the main, criticism must think of itself as life-enhancing and constitutively opposed to every form of tyranny, domination, and abuse. Its social goals are non-coercive knowledge produced in the interests of human freedom. So, coming back to the prison, I would say that the guys I talked to there read more like critics than scholars, 
to me, their responses illustrate uh, a lot of what Saeed is talking about here when he, when he defines good criticism. So let me just give you an example. So this guy says about Westover's parents, I don't doubt Tara's family loved her, especially her father, but a lot of times parents and older family members educate through their own fears, and beliefs pass from generation to generation, confiscating that vital element of our individual right to choose. So again, I hear in that uh, a critical stance that is explicitly in opposition, as Said says, to tyranny, domination, and abuse, and that is explicitly for what he calls the vital element of our individual right to choose, that is for human freedom. So uh, I wanted to read actually one more in relation to Said. So Said talks about human freedom, knowledge produced in the interest of human freedom, and I, I love that. And, uh, but what does that look like? So I think it looks a little bit like this. So this is another guy's reading of Westover's personal journey. He says, quote, It seems pretty obvious that she struggles with the same problems as her mother. She feels her father's dominance in all matters Idaho and continues throughout the book to allow herself to be drawn back inside his grasp, at least in her mind. It isn't until she left home, recognized how subservient her mother was to her father, and finally understood the severity of the mental-emotional disorders running rampant within her family that Miss Westover understands she will never change them. And here is where he comes to this kind of, I would describe, after, you know, using Said's terms as life-enhancing knowledge. He says, quote, her opinions matter to her, her education matters to her, her body is her own. She had to break the ties that bound her to the Mormon lifestyle. So that interpretation of Westover is, I think, an interpreter, at least for me, illustrates what Said means um, when he talks about knowledge produced in the interests of human freedom. And I want to make one more point about this before we get to our conversation, and that is that for all of us, our, our readings, our interpretations, our understanding is determined by our social position. I think we are made good or bad readers by that social position, or, or really, we're made good and bad readers by it. Our experiences our circumstances, the material conditions of our lives allow us to see some things, but they also keep us from seeing other things. So, for example, the guys at the prison, power and authority are highly visible. But for many of us on the outside, power and authority are largely invisible. And I think that's especially true for many of us who consider ourselves good readers. Delia, welcome to WVU Reads. Thank you for having me. So maybe you could just describe a little bit. We went out there, I think it was a Monday. Yes. Is that right? Yeah, it was a Monday. It was some day of the week <laughs> in the morning. Right. And we were there for, I think, two or three hours yes. in the room. We were Aside the from the, the, you know, it's a long walk all the way back to the unit, through all the doors. Right. To the classroom. And then we were in there. And then you abandoned me about halfway through. <laughs> I did. I'm to take sorry. Take a phone about call. <laughs> we had a conference call uh -huh. with, uh, with, uh, with someone we're trying to partner with out of um, DC because there are a lot of DC, um, Washington, DC um, incarcerated men and women inside Hazleton. And so oh, okay. um, the partnership is more about uh, trying to get them services hmm. while in Hazleton. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Um, and I, I mean, I loved the experience. I, it was really fun to talk with them about the book. Yeah. Um, and I found they had a lot to say. 
And like you're describing, I was I, sometimes I was surprised by what they said. And one thing that I was particularly surprised about was how many of them, certainly not all of them, but like how many of them were able to relate to the story that Tara Westover tells in the book, even though the circumstances of their lives were very different. Right. You know, they were like, I don't know anything about Mormonism. I don't know anything about Idaho. Yes. But there were aspects of her story right. that spoke to them. Um, when, I w- when I went to give them the book, I did talk to them and I said, um, you know, as I, I was reading the book on my own, I thought about how, yeah, how can you use this book inside the prisons? But at the end of the day, it's not just a, it's not about relating um, to Tara and, you know, Idaho and, um, you know, Bucks Peak and what have you. It's, you know, again, like you said, the men and how they bring those stories into their lives, right? Yeah. And so some of them discussed um, the violence in their environments and as a culture. Yeah. And so it was, you know, and not just that, but I think also when we, we are reading her narrative. And so as we're reading it, we're sitting there saying, how, um, how is she still there? You know, just get out of it. And the, right. the things that she was living and, but that's because it's being told after it happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and so ha- that's one of the discussions that the men t- talked about, like how many of us lived like that in right. our environment. And we still continued, whether it's, um, you know, our home life, our the streets, you know, yeah. the code on the streets and what have you. Right, right. I remember that somebody pointed out the sort of the junkyard that we hear about in Educated mm-hmm. is the streets. Right. For for some of these guys. Yeah. Um, so, and, and one of the questions you asked them that they wrote about had to do with that, right? That was sort of about something that they had grown up with mm-hmm. just taking as as fact and then later came to question. Right. And so the questions were, um, what is something that you grew up believing because your environment influenced you to think that way, but that has now changed with the progression of your life, whether that be your environment can be your parents, your household, friends, or church, etc. And that's just to have a different view and not just the black and white of of Tara's story. Mm -hmm. And then the second question was... Well, let's. I want to talk about uh, that. Could we... Yeah. Because I I think people would really like to hear some of their responses. And I, I wanted to read... Just one here that, mm-hmm. it, that one of the responses to that question um, that, that is a good illustration of what we were just describing. So right. he says, I was taken by surprise with the relatableness of her story and that of the struggles of a lot of the African-American youth born into the lifestyle of crime in urban American projects. That whole, quote, this is who we are, this is what we do, and this is what you will be approach of parents or individuals raising children with total disregard to the possible variables of people as individuals. I don't doubt Tara's family loved her, especially her father, but a lot of times parents and older family members educate through their own fears and beliefs pass from generation to generation, confiscating that vital element of our individual right of liberty to choose. I thought that was just kind of a fascinating and, for me, really helpful response to the book. Um, first of all, this sort of sensitivity to um, the ways in which, like, he talks about the total disregard to the possible variables of people as individuals, like how oppressive culture can be right. in that way, mm-hmm. what, whether it's, you know, this in the projects or out in rural Idaho. Right. Um, 
And, 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 and then he comes back to that idea and he calls it that vital element of our individual right of liberty to choose. Like there's such a, such a sort of a, uh, a sense of, of what's right and what's right being giving people the freedom to, to become who they are. Yes. Right. To, and, 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 and some of them talked about voice right. in that way too. But also that response, um, and, and this was something that, that was really useful to me in our discussion, was the ways in which they seemed to have a little more patience or understanding for Gene Westover, the father, right. than I did. You know, he says, I don't doubt Tara's family loved her, especially her father. And, like, I definitely doubted that right. <laughs> at times reading the book. Yeah, th- that was surprising. And I, and I thought there was going to be a little more um, sympathy towards the mother. Yeah. Yeah, and um, unfortunately we didn't, um, get to discuss that very much either. You're right. Um, but you know, she, you know, we I we have to look at her also as someone who was who has stayed with him and um, to a certain degree tried to um, be that support system for Tara. I think, but you know, at the end of the day, she um, chose her husband. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she failed her daughter in that way. But but you're right. It's not fair to let. Gene off the hook, but not Faye. Right. Or at least not to attempt to understand why she would have acted in the way she did, if we're going to try to understand why Gene would have. I mean, we have to assume Faye loved her daughter. Right. Just as much as... Because we did talk about the resilience of Tara and um, and her doing things on her own. But I, but I also think, and she discussed it in the book and how she see, saw the strength in her mother and when yeah. she became a healer right. and um, that her mother was really a smart woman who, you know, is the one who was providing for the family that at that moment was right. that she could see. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, the story, it's it, Tara's story is pretty heroic and I right. think, you know, generally understood to be heroic. Right. Faye's story is more complicated right? because she does, like you're describing pretty early in the book, um, kind of comes into herself and we realize what a smart, capable and courageous person she is. Right. And, but then she, that kind of falls away a little bit, mm-hmm. at least in Tara's telling right? as she defends Chon, you know, or yes. uh, doesn't intervene in the abuse and, Right. Um, there's a moment in another one of these responses because we're talking about the mother. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just, I love the way he phrased this. So he says, uh, whereas, her, this is, so this is a different response. Whereas her father was dulled to his decisions causing injuries on others, the brothers seemed to directly like to cause injury, possibly even taking some perverse joy out of it. And mom, mom just tried to deny there was any problem and accepted her husband's judgments on all matters of importance. And then he goes on, like I was describing before, the way that uh, the way that they're able to sort of toggle between their experiences and the experiences of the characters in the book and use each to understand the other is so great. So he, he talks about um, his history of, of, of being um, adopted mm-hmm. and the way that that, you know, sort of, talks about in terms of nature and nurture and he talks about the ways that his and i remember i remember this conversation Mm -hmm. very clearly like the way that his biological parents he says still have a pull on my mind um but then so then he says it seems pretty obvious that she being tara struggles with the same problems as her mother she feels her father so they're like she is there there is an attempt to understand 
the mother I right. think, um, as well as the father. She feels her father's dominance <clears throat> in all matters Idaho and continues throughout the book to allow herself to be drawn back inside his grasp, at least in her mind. Um, and, and then he talks about how it's only when she's able to kind of break away from that that she becomes who she is. Right. The, the perspectives that, this, that the men came up with is just, um, it, it's humbling to be part of the group because, um, you know, like I said, when I thought about the book, I, 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 I told them, I was like, you know, just be, be open-minded and, you know, you're, you're not going to relate to her, but right. think about her story. Right. And, um, and, and so, you know, part of, part of this for me and why I enjoyed it was because I think about um, what I thought of with the work that I've been doing inside the prisons, um, you know, getting my undergrad in criminology was what I wanted to do. So I wanted to do law enforcement and thinking that, you know, we're, we're locking up the right people. Mm-hmm. And then I go into the prison and I'm realizing that, you know, not, not everybody is innocent, but there's something wrong with the, with the system. Mm-hmm. And so that was part of my, you know, aha moment when it comes to being educated and realizing that, you know, what we grew up believing when it comes to um, certain institutions or certain beliefs are just not really what it is. Yeah. So it's just more about educating yourself and, huh. and having a better understanding of, of why things are, why we keep maintain status quo. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's how you, that's one of the ways you would answer that question yes. that you assigned. Mm-hmm. And was it the inside out class that initially drew you to have this sort of more complicated uh, sense of incarceration and, and the criminal justice system? Or did it, did it predate that? No, it, it was the inside out class. Um, I honestly, I came to WVU to really just get my degree uh-huh. <laughs> and then move on from there yeah and this class i was i took it in the fall of 2011 and as, as, so that was as an undergraduate as an you undergrad. took the course yeah yes and so <clears throat> it's you'll hear from other students um whoever talks about inside out how life-changing this class is and that's what happened you know yeah. i all of a sudden um saw as a classmates, you know, the men for who they were, the women um, in other programs that I taught, you know, how inviting they are and how they just want to be seen as somebody and not just their numbers, not just their last name. Right. And so giving them the ability to have open discussions, you know, and not judging them and us not being judged also as students. Well, I'm curious, were there were there things in their responses or, or, or particular moments in their responses that, that you wanted to talk about or, or were struck by? Um, <clears throat> I think one of the gentlemen also on here described a, um, a theme. And so he talked yeah. about love and loyalty yeah. and why um, Tara stayed where she was at. Um, and I thought that that was... Again, when when I had discussed earlier about, um, you know, why she stood, like us reading it, us reading her story is her reflection of, is her narrative, right? And right. so, um, 
So it was this, like, how is she still there? But how many of us live these lives where we're either in abusive relationships or, you know, un- unhealthy relationships, whether it's family, friends, or what have you, work environment, and why do we stay there? And so when he said love and loyalty, like, I could definitely understand that. You know, there's many times where we'd like, you know, there's family members that we may not get mm-hmm. along with or what mm-hmm. have you, but there's still this this idea that they're family. So we, you know... We stick it out, and yeah. so I thought. Um, I'm sorry, I'm trying to find it here. Well, I I, I know there's. Um, I've got this one. This is where he. It's like love and loyalty underlined three exclamation points. Right. But uh, it came up in someone else's too, so I think they'd been talking uh, talking about that before. And I think session. they did say that that they were uh, they had gotten together to kind yeah. of discuss it on their own also (laughs) yeah which i love and that's another thing i love about the book club you know is how much conversation there is outside of the two hours in which we're facilitating the book club about the book right yeah that's the one that i was looking at with the exclamation marks would you read some of that okay so i'm going to start with i must so the gentleman wrote i must also say that while i cannot comprehend nor empathize with what westover's day-to-day life entailed her overall journey and life resonates with me in the most profound way of all the misunderstandings and falsehoods she was raised with there were two for which she was never in doubt about love and loyalty and that's where it's has the exclamation marks most children will believe their parents or guardians blindly because they simply know nothing else this is the part of her i totally and completely empathize with because i am loyal to a fault also And like Tara, I have learned that blind loyalty can be even more dangerous when compounded with love. Yeah, that's an I had I had marked that passage Mm -hmm. too because I found that it's just sort of such a a, it just seems very wise to me, you know, like and nuanced his understanding of these two things and the way they intermingle, you know, that the the loyalty is 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 dangerous when compounded with love. You know, I mean, clearly speaking from a place of experience. One of the questions that I included was um, what, and that I, so I asked them to write about, although we didn't get to talk about this as much when I was out there, what has your education looked like? Has it taken place in schools and classrooms? Uh, Has it taken place in other contexts? And again, there were some really amazing responses to that question. Um, So I've got one here. The experience of life is one continuous educational journey. And that's a note that I saw in a lot of these, actually. You know, that it's kind of an ongoing process. Classrooms, schools, farms, etc. are all found within and part of the experience of living. As long as I am alive, each moment gives credence to what my education looks like. The journey of life is what my education has been. No better learning than that. It's the foundation of all learning. That made me think about the epi- one of the epigraphs to the book, the one from John Dewey. So Tara Westover opens the book with two epigraphs, one from Virginia Woolf and one from John Dewey. And the one from John Dewey, who is a philosopher of many things, but including education, I believe finally that education must be conceived as a continuing reconstruction of experience, that the process and the goal of education are one and the same thing. Like, to me, that's exactly what he's describing and also what I see in these responses, you know, is this continuing reconstruction of experience. Right. And that the book is 
facilitates that process. Yes. You know, they can, and this is what I'm always trying to do in my classes too, like they can use the characters in the book to describe and re-describe and reconstruct their experiences presently and in the past. Right. Um, so I don't know. That's why I just think literature is such a great tool for doing that. And, it, and it's so particularly in this setting. Right. It really is. And an, there was another one that where he described his education. It says, my education was mostly self-imposed self-study. Since I grew up in the prison setting, I obtained my GED at age 19. And so um, he was one of the ones that spoke um, a lot during our conversations in there. And, you know, like you said, we all, t- we all in the prison, they, they're continuing their education. Yeah. Right. So there's this, um, and that, and I think that's what the programs inside the prisons are, are helping is, is this understanding that there's always, you know, something to learn. You learn something every day. Yeah. And so that's what, that's what they're doing. They're, they're, they're so hungry for new information. Yes. Um, because when we look at the prison system and educational levels, so when we're looking at people incarcerated, there's a statistic where, um, Total incarcerated, some high school or less, 43%. 40, sorry, 41.3%. Some high school. Some high school. Or less than that. Or less than that. Yeah. Right. And I think one of the gentlemen had um, had also discussed how he had um, stopped going to school mm-hmm. at age at grade 9. Yep. And somewhere at grade 8. The last grade I completed was the 8th. I did get my GED at 30 in California State Prison. Right. And so um, so the fact that we have volunteers, not just um, WVU, but other volunteers, there's a lot of religious volunteers that go in also and uh, learning new things. These men are men and women are hungry for uh, new information. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, in, in, in our discussion, I mean, they just brought so much energy to that conversation. And that's true of the, of the book club that, that I co-facilitate also. I mean, there's just a, a palpable energy in the room to talk about ideas, right. to have meaningful encounters with ideas, to just say what's on their mind, you know, and they sp- speak very frankly. Right. This is what I think, you know. <laughs> right. Because there's that judge-free zone that we have there. Mm. So, you know, I think one of the things that I also respect about um, the administration when it comes to the programs that we have is that they allow them also in that space to um, to be open about the yeah. things that they want to say and yeah. their opinions and yeah yeah I want to see if there are any other passages from their responses that I wanted to flag about this issue of education okay oh here's one and this speaks to that statistic also mm-hmm. my education was not wholly formal after graduating elementary school I went to high school and after failing my freshman year due to attendance and lack of interest and effort i failed my freshman year and was ultimately ultimately set back which i decided not to go back because of the embarrassment i would face if i went back thus ensued my street internship right so stopped attending classes in ninth grade wasn't motivated and then just kind of gave up on the whole enterprise of school 
Yes, definitely. There was also another one. And this one, I think, is similar to the one you just read. So this one is my education started out very standard grades one through nine. So this one says, so my education started out very standard grades one through nine, which consisted of the typical American public school in the inner city. However, education that I utilized most was what I learned from was what regular days in my public housing environment. It wasn't until the end of ninth grade when I was convicted of my first felony and sentenced to state prison that I started to self-teach myself in various subjects, economics, African history, world history, real estate, and a few others. To me, my self-teaching, coupled with life experiences, elevated my wisdom and knowledge beyond what the conventional, conventional education I received in grade school, and today I utilize the strength of self-teaching and life experience to continue to ascend in every aspect of life. Yeah. And then the last, the last question that you posed, Delia, was about voice. So would you read that question? I actually think this is something that you put on there. I did? (laughs) Yeah, you asked What is voice? What is voice? I asked that? Yes. (laughs) Okay. What is voice, and how important is it that every child be encouraged to find their own? Well, I'm glad I did because they had some interesting things to say about it. Right. Um, the one you were just reading from, I liked, I liked his response. He said, voice is expression of thought, and it's important that every child be encouraged to find their own voice because it's what makes up a child's ability to gain self-esteem, self-reliance, build character as an individual, um, and become an asset not only to themselves but to society. Yeah, I found a, a real um, faith in the power of the individual voice and uh, a, a, a real desire that that be nurtured. Yes, and I think part of that has to do with um, in, in going inside the prison and, and having these classes is allowing them to have that voice. I don't necessarily know that, that they would have the freedom to have the voice that they do without the programs that are available mm-hmm. at the facility. Mm-hmm. Now there's definitely uh, literature out there from people that were, you know, during their incarceration and those who have been released and and their experiences while incarcerated or how, their environment and so um, their voices are very much needed. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and the and the 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 power of of voicing that particular experience. Right. Um, I actually brought in a poem and I I wanted to. Um, I thought maybe I brought in a couple of poems, but one of them I think is uh, is is about that, or they both are. Um, so maybe I could read one of the poems, and, and you could read one. Sure, Delia. So um, this is a poem that I'll read by a guy, a poet named Nazim Hikmet, who was a Turkish poet who um, spent I think ten or maybe even fifteen years incarcerated. And this is a poem called "Since I Was Thrown Inside." Since I was thrown inside, the earth has gone around the sun ten times. If you ask it, that's nothing, a microscopic span. If you ask me, ten years of my life. I had a pencil the year I was thrown inside. It lasted me a week. If you ask it, a whole lifetime. If you ask me, what's a week? Since I've been inside... Osman did his seven and a half for manslaughter and left, 
knocked around on the outside for a while, then landed back inside for smuggling, served six months, and got out again. Yesterday, we had a letter. He's married with a kid coming in the spring. They're ten years old now, the children born the year I was thrown inside. And that year's foals, shaky on their spindly long legs, have been wide-rumped, contented mares for some time. But the olive seedlings are still saplings, still children. New squares have opened in my far-off city since I was thrown inside. And my family now lives in a house I haven't seen on a street I don't know. Bread was like cotton, soft and white, the year I was thrown inside. Then it was rationed, and here inside men killed for a fist-sized black loaf. Now it's free again, but dark and tasteless. The year I was thrown inside, the second hadn't started yet. The ovens at Dachau hadn't been lit, nor the atom bomb dropped on Hiroshima. Time flowed like blood from a child's slit throat. Then that chapter was officially closed. Now the American dollar talks of a third. Still, the day has gotten lighter since I was thrown inside. And at the edge of darkness, pushing against the earth with their heavy hands, they've risen up halfway. Since I was thrown inside, the earth has gone around the sun ten times. And I repeat with the same passion what I wrote about them the year I was thrown inside. They who are numberless like ants in the earth, fish in the sea, birds in the air, who are cowardly, brave, ignorant, wise, and childlike, and who destroy and create. My songs tell only of their adventures. And anything else, such as my ten years here, is just so much talk. What do you think of that poem? That's a great poem. He talks about how things have changed um, since he's been inside. And mm-hmm. you know, sometimes it's, it's almost like a forgotten population unless you have somebody inside. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Totally invisible. Right. Um, and this, uh, this stanza when he talks about his, his, my family now lives in a house I haven't seen on a street I don't know. Uh, and when he talks about his children, I think they're his children. He says the children born the year. That's something I've heard, you know, on a lot of different occasions. Right. Uh, is that palpable sense of, of the life that's taking place and that they're missing. Right. Out on the outside. Yeah. Um, well, maybe we could end with this one other poem, if you wouldn't mind reading it, uh, The Idea of Ancestry. So this is a poem by uh, Etheridge Knight, who was uh, a poet who was incarcerated at a prison in Indiana. Sure. Taped to the wall of my cell are 47 pictures, 47 black faces, my mother, my father, excuse me, mother, grandmothers, one dead, grandfathers, both dead. Brothers, sisters, uncles, aunts, cousins, first and second. Nieces and nephews, they stare across the space at me sprawling on my bunk. I know their dark eyes, they know mine. I know their style, they know mine. I am all of them, they are all of me. They are farmers, I am a thief, I am me, they are thee. I have at one time or another been loved by my, with my mother, one grandmother, two sisters, two aunts, one went to an asylum, and five cousins. I am now in love with a, with a seven-year-old niece. She, send me, she sends me letters written in large block print, and her picture is the only one that smiles at me. 
I have the same name as one grandfather, three cousins, three nephews, and one uncle. The uncle disappeared when I was 15, just took off and caught a freight, they say. He discussed each year when the family was... He's discussed each year when the family has a reunion. He causes uneasiness in the clan. He is an empty space. My father's mother, who is 93 and who keeps the family Bible with everybody's birth dates and death dates in it, always mentions him. There is no place in her Bible for whereabouts unknown. Each fall, the graves of my grandfathers call me. The brown hills and red gullies of Mississippi send out their electric messages, galvanizing my genes. Last year, like a salmon quitting the, ocean, the cold ocean leaping and bucking up his birth stream. I hitchhiked my way from L.A. with 16 caps in my pocket and a money on my, monkey on my back, and I almost kicked it with the kinforks. I walked barefooted in my grandfather's backyard. Excuse me. I walked barefooted in my grandmother's backyard. I smelled the old land and the woods. I sipped corn whiskey from fruit jars with the men. I flirted with the women. I had a ball till the cap ran out, and my habit came down. That night, I looked at my grandmother and spit. My guts were screaming for junk, but I almost, but I was almost contented. I had almost caught it. Had I'm sorry. I had almost cut up with me. The next day in Memphis, I cracked a croaker's rib for a fix. This year, there is a gray stone wall damming my stream. There is a gray stone wall damming my stream, and when the falling leaves stir my jeans. I pace my cell or flop on my bunk and stare at, 20, at 47 black faces across the space. I am all of them. They are all of me. I am me and they are thee. And I have no children to float in the space between. This podcast is a joint production of the WVU Humanities Center and the DA and produced by Nick Kratzis and Savon Hunter. Copyright 2019.